Chapter Five Abraham Part Five of the Legends of the Jews, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Legends of the Jews, Volume One, by Rabbi Louis Ginsburg. His Sojourn in Egypt. Scarcely had Abraham established himself in Canaan when a devastating famine broke out. One of the ten God appointed famines for the chastisement of men. The first of them came in the time of Adam, when God cursed the ground for his sake. The second was this one in the time of Abraham. The third compelled Isaac to take up his abode among the Philistines. The ravages of the fourth drove the sons of Jacob into Egypt to buy grain for food. The fifth came in the time of the judges, when Emelech and his family had to seek refuge in the land of Moab. The sixth occurred during the reign of David, and it lasted three years. The seventh happened in the day of Elijah, who had sworn that neither rain nor dew should fall upon the earth. The eighth was the one in the time of Elisha, when an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. The ninth is the famine that comes upon men piecemeal from time to time, and the tenth will scourge men before the advent of Messiah, and this last will be not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The famine in the time of Abraham prevailed only in Canaan, and it had been inflicted upon the land in order to test his faith. He stood this second temptation as he had the first. He murmured not, and he showed no sign of impatience toward God, who had bidden him shortly before to abandon his native land for a land of starvation. The famine compelled him to leave Canaan for a time, and he repaired to Egypt, to become acquainted there with the wisdom of the priests, and, if necessary, give them instruction in the truth. On this journey from Canaan to Egypt, Abraham first observed the beauty of Sarah. Chaste as he was, he had never before looked at her, but now, when they were wading through a stream, he saw the reflection of her beauty in the water like the brilliance of the sun. Wherefore he spoke to her thus, The Egyptians are very sensual, and I will put thee in a casket, that no harm befall me on account of thee. At the Egyptian boundary the tax-collectors asked him about the contents of the casket, and Abraham told them he had barley in it. No, they said, it contains wheat. Very well, replied Abraham, I am prepared to pay the tax on wheat. The officers then hazarded the guests. It contains pepper. Abraham agreed to pay the tax on pepper, and when they charged him with concealing gold in the casket, he did not refuse to pay the tax on gold, and finally on precious stones. Seeing that he demurred to no charge, however high, the tax collectors, made thoroughly suspicious, insisted upon his unfastening the casket and letting them examine the contents. When it was forced open, the whole of Egypt was resplendent with the beauty of Sarah. In comparison with her, all other beauties were like apes compared with men. She excelled Eve herself. The servants of Pharaoh outbid one another in seeking to obtain possession of her, though they were of opinion that so radiant a beauty ought not to remain the property of a private individual. They reported the matter to the king, and Pharaoh sent a powerful armed force to bring Sarah to the palace, and so bewitched was he by her charms that those who had brought him the news of her coming into Egypt were loaded down with bountiful gifts. 
Amid tears Abraham offered up a prayer. He entreated God in these words, Is this the reward for my confidence in thee? For the sake of thy grace and thy loving-kindness, let not my hope be put to shame. Sarah also implored God, saying, O God, thou didst bid my lord Abraham leave his home, the land of his fathers, and journey to Canaan, and thou didst promise him to do good unto him if he fulfilled thy commands. And now we have done as thou didst command us to do. We left our country and our kindred, and we journeyed to a strange land, unto a people which we knew not heretofore. We came hither to save our people from starvation, and now hath this terrible misfortune befallen. O Lord, help me, and save me from the hand of this enemy. For the sake of thy grace show me good. An angel appeared unto Sarah while she was in the presence of the king, to whom he was not visible, and he bade her take courage, saying, Fear not, Sarah, for God hath heard thy prayer. The king questioned Sarah as to the man in the company of whom she had come to Egypt, and Sarah called Abraham her brother. Pharaoh pledged himself to make Abraham great and powerful, to do for him whatever she wished. He sent much gold and silver to Abraham, and diamonds and pearls, sheep and oxen, and men-slaves and women-slaves, and he assigned a residence to him within the precincts of the royal palace. In the love he bore Sarah, he wrote out a marriage contract, deeding to her all he owned in the way of gold and silver, and men-slaves and women-slaves, and the province of Goshen besides, the province occupied in latter days by the descendants of Sarah, because it was their property. Most remarkable of all, he gave her his own daughter Hagar as slave, for he preferred to see his daughter the servant of Sarah to reigning as mistress in another harem. His free-handed generosity availed not. During the night, when he was about to approach Sarah, an angel appeared armed with a stick, and if Pharaoh but touched Sarah's shoe to remove it from her foot, the angel planted a blow upon his hand, and when he grabbed her dress, a second blow followed. At each blow he was about to deal, the angel asked Sarah whether he was to let it descend, and if she bade him give Pharaoh a moment to recover himself, he waited and did as she desired. And another great miracle came to pass. Pharaoh and his nobles and his servants, the very walls of his house and his bed, were afflicted with leprosy, and he could not indulge his carnal desires. This night, in which Pharaoh and his court suffered their well-deserved punishment, was the night of the fifteenth of Nisan, the same night wherein God visited the Egyptians in a later time, in order to redeem Israel, the descendants of Sarah. Horrified by the plague sent upon him, Pharaoh inquired how he could rid himself thereof. He applied to the priests, from whom he found out the true cause of his affliction, which was corroborated by Sarah. He then sent for Abraham, and returned his wife to him, pure and untouched, and excused himself for what had happened, saying that he had had the intention of connecting himself in marriage with him whom he had thought to be the brother of Sarah. He bestowed rich gifts upon the husband and the wife, and they departed for Canaan after a three-month sojourn in Egypt. Arrived in Canaan, they sought the same night-shelters at which they had rested before, in order to pay their accounts, and also to teach by their example that it is not proper to seek new quarters unless one is forced to it. Abraham's sojourn in Egypt was of great service to the inhabitants of the country, because he demonstrated to the wise men of the land how empty and vain their views were, and also he taught them astronomy and astrology, 
unknown in Egypt before his time. The Legend of the Jews, Volume 1, by Rabbi Louis Ginsberg, The First Pharaoh The Egyptian ruler, whose meeting with Abraham had proved so untoward an event, was the first to bear the name Pharaoh. The succeeding kings were named thus after him. The origin of the name is connected with the life and adventures of Rekyon Havnat, a man wise, handsome, and poor, who lived in the land of Shinar. Finding himself unable to support himself in Shinar, he resolved to depart for Egypt, where he expected to display his wisdom before the king, Ashwarosh, the son of Anam. Perhaps he would find grace in the eyes of the king, who would give Rekyon the opportunity of supporting himself and rising to be a great man. When he reached Egypt, he learnt that it was the custom of the country for the king to remain in retirement in his palace, removed from the sight of the people. Only on one day of the year he showed himself in public, and received all who had a petition to submit to him. Richer, by a disappointment, Rekyon knew not how he was to earn a livelihood in the strange country. He was forced to spend the night in a ruin, hungry as he was. The next day he decided to try to earn something by selling vegetables. By a lucky chance he fell in with some dealers in vegetables, but as he did not know the customs of the country, his new undertaking was not favored with good fortune. Ruffians assaulted him, snatched his wares from him, and made a laughing stock of him. The second night, which he was compelled to spend in the ruin again, a sly plan ripened in his mind. He arose and gathered together a crew of thirty lusty fellows. He took them to the graveyard, and bade them, in the name of the king, charge two hundred pieces of silver for everybody they buried. Otherwise, interment was to be prevented. In this way he succeeded in amassing great wealth within eight months. Not only did he acquire silver, gold, and precious gems— but also he attached a considerable force, armed and mounted, to his person. On the day on which the king appeared among the people, they began to complain of this tax upon the dead. They said, What is this thou art inflicting upon thy servants, permitting none to be buried unless they pay thee silver and gold? Has a thing like this come to pass in the world since the days of Adam, that the dead should not be interred unless money be paid therefore? We know well that it is the privilege of the king to take an annual tax from the living, but thou takest tribute from the dead too, and thou exactest it day by day. O king, we cannot endure this any longer, for the whole of the city is ruined thereby. The king, who had no suspicion of Rakeon's doings, fell into a great rage when the people gave him information about them. He ordered him and his armed force to appear before him. Rakeon did not come empty-handed. He was preceded by a thousand youths and maidens, mounted upon steeds, and arrayed in state apparel. These were a present to the king. When he himself stepped before the king, he delivered gold, silver, and diamonds to him in great abundance, and a magnificent charger. These gifts and the display of splendor did not fail of taking effect upon the king, and when Rakeon, in well-considered words and with a pliant tongue, described the undertaking, he won not only the king to his side, but also the whole court. And the king said to him, No longer shalt thou be called Rakeon, have not, but Pharaoh, paymaster, for thou didst collect taxes from the dead. So profound was the impression made by Rakeon that the king, the grandees, and the people all together resolved to put the guidance of the realm in the hands of Pharaoh. 
Under the suzerainty of Ashwarosh, he administered law and justice throughout the year. Only on the one day when he showed himself to the people did the king himself give judgment and decide cases. Through the power thus conferred upon him, and through cunning practices, Pharaoh succeeded in usurping royal authority, and he collected taxes from all the inhabitants of Egypt. Nevertheless he was beloved of the people, and it was decreed that every ruler of Egypt should thenceforth bear the name Pharaoh. End of chapter 5, part 4